we thank you for this evening. We thank you, God, for this gift, your word that is before us now. And, Father, we ask that you'll take it and uh, manifest it in our heart. Use it in a way in which you desire, Father, that might be pleasing to you. And, Father, we, uh, we just ask you, we confess our need right now for ears to hear. We need uh, ears to hear from you tonight and hearts that can receive that which you say to us, Lord. And we thank you for this gift and we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we began this process by looking at uh, Philippians 2, really, for our foundation. And uh, let me read Philippians 2, verse 12. These verses will come up on the screen. The Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. And what we said was we really honed in on this uh, passage, really looking deeply into uh, verse 12 and all that is uh, uh, said there. And we have used this analogy of a farmer. We talked about how uh, in Christ, uh, I mean, there's really no way for us to get through this without using some visual imagery in order to really get a hold of. That's the only way I was able to get a hold of this uh, back when when God opened my eyes to this uh, as a just as a young Christian walking, reading, studying, praying, seeking His face. I needed to, to be able to visualize what I was trying to comprehend and understand. And so hopefully that's helpful to you. But in verse 12, when the, when Paul says that to these believers who have been obedient and walking in the Lord to work out their own salvation, that uh, they're not working out something to possess it, they're working out something they already possess. And so we've been using this analogy here, this illustration of a farmer working a field. It's his field. He doesn't work the field to gain the field, to gain possession of the field. It's already his field. He works the field in order to gain the blessing and the benefit of possessing the field. And so what I want you to understand is what we're talking about is what do you do after salvation? Well, how do you practically work out your the gift of salvation in your life that you may be all that God intended for you to be so that you can harness the blessing that comes with being in Christ. And so we stack the next block on top of that using 2 Peter chapter 1 where two weeks ago we talked about now getting off the porch. We talked about this farmer who just sits on the porch and uh, just looks out at the field and says, wow, what a nice field I have. Isn't this a beautiful field? Look at how great the field is. It's a smooth field. It's got a good color to it. It's got a good texture to it. But sitting on the porch, nothing's going to grow. You're not going to harvest anything from the field until you get off the porch, get out in the field, and begin the process of actual farming. The challenge I have in this is I know literally nothing about farming. And so I'm really having to stretch here. So don't, don't correct me uh, because, honestly, I'm, it's just, just say, bless his heart. He's ignorant about farming, okay? Okay, good. All right. Second Peter chapter 1, getting off the porch, we use this passage to launch us into that understanding. 
Uh, verse 3, uh, Peter says, "...as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." So what Peter begins to tell us is the potential of this field. I mean, this is a fantastic uh, passage about the potential of this field that we're going to work out. It's filled with exceedingly great and precious promises, but that's not all. He goes on, verse 5, and says, but also for this very reason we're to give all diligence. Remember, we talked long and hard about giving all diligence to, to uh, working out this field. And he says, give all diligence and add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, we see this agricultural imagery. We don't want to be barren and unfruitful. And so what this is the potential that we have to to reap this amazing harvest in Christ of this field which we've been given. But now tonight we need to take our first step in actually farming this this ground. We need to begin the process of actually getting out there and getting our hands dirty and beginning to walk in the sanctification that God has given us an opportunity to walk in. So where do we start? Uh, Where's the the starting point? Uh, You know... Once God has granted uh, you and me access into His kingdom and uh, to be counted among the beloved, His sons and daughters, what, well, what do we, what do we do? Where, where do we begin? What does that look like? Well, to start this process, I think what we need to do is look to Colossians three, and that's where we'll be tonight. Colossians three will give us some. Uh, at least some launching understanding to wading into the deep things of sanctification. Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11, read as follows. The Apostle Paul says to the church of Colossae, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. For Christ who is our life appeared. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, because these Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you yourselves once once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, malice, wrath, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him where there is neither Greek nor Jew nor circumcised nor uncircumcised nor barbarian nor uh, Scythian or slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. Now, what Paul does in Colossians 3 is he then tells us practically what do we do 
when God has granted us positionally this place in Christ, now how do we take what we have positionally and work it out practically? What do we, how do we move forward? So just two simple points. The first one is you become a serial killer of sin. The first thing we do when we're going we're gonna to go out into the field and begin to work, uh, we're going we're gonna to put these garments on, these garments of grace is what I call them, and we're going to go out, we're going we're gonna to begin to work. I mean, the imagery here is really to, to, to go out and, and with the intent of being a serial killer of the sin that has beset us, the sin that we once were slaves to, according to uh, Romans 6, but now no longer have dominion and power and authority over us. We want to declare war against them and go after them. So Paul says, therefore, in verse 5, put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he goes through this list of personal sins of self-gratification, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience in which you once, yourselves, once walked when you lived in them. Now, Paul, what he does is he, he, he gives us this list. It's not an exhaustive list. I don't think there's any uh, uh, specific... Um, necessary nature or order to them. He's just listing off things that we need to put to death, but he is grouping them together. There's another list we'll get to and uh, later on in this passage that's a little bit different. This one is definitely a list of, of personal sins of gratification, but nonetheless, the point is, is that I want to grow as a Christian. You want to grow as a Christian. And so the tendency, or at least the the, the understanding that automatically comes to us is behavior modification. So what I need to do is I need to start behaving better. I need to stop doing certain things that I used to do. Now, that's not incorrect. It's just incomplete. You are going to be an utter failure at just stopping things that you just are. You have been. You will be. It, I am, I will be. That's not the biblical pattern of killing sin, just stopping something. Uh, it, it, takes, it takes something new, something greater, something more glorious, something stronger, something more wonderful to replace that which we're trying to uh, kill. So really, let me use the way the Puritans would, would explain this to people with regards to uh, killing sin in your life. They, they had an understanding of uh, morality that was simply motivated by behavior modification. They would call this uh, uh, common virtue. And so here's, here's how they would explain it. They would say that there are really two uh, motivators for this common virtue or this this behavior modification. Now, just put yourself in whatever camp you fit in, whatever tendency you have. I think we all fall into one or the other. Our morality, we can act moral. We can just decide, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then we can act moral, motivated by fear. We can just be motivated by fear, the fear that if I do bad things, then bad things are going to happen to me. 
So in other words, we can, we can stop uh, uh, behaving in a certain way because we're afraid that if we continue to behave that way, God is going to uh, bring judgment upon us or He's going to remove His hand of blessing in some way. And so most of the time what we do is we affix these things. Uh, they're like tumors that grow on top of uh, organs in our body. So if we're, you know, if we're afraid of, of one thing, then, uh, then we tend to operate in that way. So, for example, uh, someone who maybe owns a business and, and is afraid that God will not bless their business... So they're, they, they say, I'm going to be very uh, careful to, to give, to always give and tie the, the money that I make from my business so that God will bless my business. Now, that's not wrong. Hear me. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying that that motivation of fear is insufficient and incomplete. It's not, it's not a lasting biblical model for change. It will uh, depending on your uh, level and degree of fear, it will lead to some change. And you may carry that on for some amount of time. But fear is not a biblical motivator. Another motivator will be pride. See, what happens is a lot of time, and I think this is the camp most people fall into, they become Christians, they uh, get in, in, involved with other Christians, and then all of a sudden all the, the bad habits... Of, of, uh, that people have picked up along the way start rubbing off on them. And so they sort of begin to mimic that which they see. And so they start behavior modification that's motivated by pride. Meaning, I don't do these things because I'm not like them. I'm not like the people who do. Now we see this all the time in Christianity where, uh, uh, people have a tendency to have these pet sins. They have these, there's certain things that are, that are, you know, really, really bad. As if, you know, th- that those sins, uh, cost more of Christ's blood than some other sin. But, w- but we all have it. So we might as well embrace it. Everybody has a grid in their head. Everybody has some, some ideas and some, you know, some grid of, certain things that are bad and other things that are not as bad or whatever. And of course, it's always whatever we have a tendency to, to, to be weak in is not as bad as what other people do, whatever. Whatever we would never do, that's always the worst possible thing. Right. That's how it goes. And so what happens is we're motivated by pride because by not doing those things, it puffs us up and makes us think, well, we're doing so good. And so we can be motivated by fear that, that if we don't, modify our behavior, something bad's going to happen. Or we can be motivated by pride, which is if we, since we, we're going to modify our behavior because it, it, we're not like those people that do those things, which just puffs us up. Now, on the outside, it looks successful because behavior has been modified. And so f- on the outside, it looks like, well, wow, wow, look at how great they're doing. Look at how... Good things are, but there's a great danger here. There's a great danger in this common virtue and that both of these types of morality, they accomplish behavior modification, but they feed the idolatry of the heart. Now, let me help help you with that a little bit. You see, eventually a situation is going to arise. 
where the person who's motivated by fear or the person who's motivated by pride is going to come into a circumstance where they know what the moral thing to do is, but there's no payoff for them to do that. In other words, the one motivated, the problem with being motivated by pride, which is the most common, I would say, the problem with that is, is that we're all eventually alone. Right? Yes. You see, the person who is moral because they're prideful, what happens when there's no one else around? What happens when you're all by yourself? In other words, when you will not be found out by another human being. Well, then your motivation just fizzled away. Because you can get away with it. And your pride's not going to get dented because no one's going to know. Right? Yes. And the person who's motivated by fear, eventually a temptation is going to come along that's greater than the risk of losing the blessing that you're trying to keep by being moral. You see, it won't work. It's not a biblical model. It's not, it's not, it's not biblical change. It's, it's, it's not sustainable. So what do we, so, so then how do we, because certainly our, our behavior is to be modified in a gospel-centered way, but how do we move forward in that? Well, this is what the Puritans would call true virtue as opposed to common virtue. True biblical gospel-centered morality. And that is when we act morally not because it profits us or it makes us feel better, but because we are enamored with the beauty of God who is truth. In other words, when we act morally, when we make decisions that honor God, when we live our lives in such a way that is, is in sync with the commands of Scripture, not because it gains us anything, which we all know what in reality it is because it's going to cost us something, but it doesn't matter because the cost is 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 not even an issue because the glory of God so overwhelms the cost of the moral behavior. You see, think about what the gospel does. Because behavior, morality, motivated by pride or motivated by fear, fail to comprehend the gospel. That's not gospel-centered change. Now, here's why. Because the gospel thwarts both deficiencies. In other words, the gospel is going to destroy pride. How does it do that? Well, when you understand the gospel correctly, here's what you understand. My sin was so heinous that Jesus had to die for me. Bye-bye, pride. There's no room for pride in that understanding, is there? No. You see, the gospel has no, there's no, there's not a, there's no cubbyhole for pride. When you understand the gravity of your sin was so severe, it was so enormous, the debt was so 
overwhelming that you could never ever in a billion years repay the debt. You could never overcome the deficit that you had created. Therefore, the Son of God had to die for you to be reconciled to God. There is no pride in that. Right? Yes. So see, it, the gospel slays pride, but it also slays fear. How does it do that? Because if the Son of God died for you, then He must love you immensely. So what on earth do you have to be afraid of? You see? That's how you change in a gospel-centered way. So just, you know, for the record, if, if I could go back and raise my children over again, which I can't, but I think every parent wishes they could, at least who has teenagers, if I could do that, I would devote myself ten times more to those two truths. I would inundate, I would saturate my children with the reality, number one, that their sin is so heinous that God had to die for them to be reconciled. But on the other hand, the fact that God died a horrible death of injustice on their behalf, surely seals in their heart His love and devotion to them. That you don't need to be afraid that God's going to bail out on the plan. You understand? His investment is too great. I always use the relational term, God's all in. You understand? He's all in the relationship. If anybody's flaky in the relationship, it's not God, it's us. He's all in. He can't be any more in. He has committed. He's put all the resources. I mean, he's done, I mean, he's done it all. There's no backing up for him. The minute you are redeemed, the very instant of justification, salvation in your life, in that instant, God's all in. There's no backing up. He's, he's paid, the price is too high. So the very idea that someone would comprehend the gospel and then be puffed up with pride because they're able to behave in a certain way is utter nonsense. It's, it's nonsense. They don't, they don't understand the gospel. And the very idea that a person would understand the gospel and then be afraid that somehow God's uh, love for them is going to wane or that if they don't behave in a certain way, He's going to abandon them is, again, utter nonsense. It cannot be true. It cannot be true. So the motivator for change is the gospel. And over the course of the, the coming weeks, every week, I'm just going to stack another block on top of this hill. And I'll show you another way that the Scripture teaches it is the gospel that changes us. It is the gospel that changes everything about us. But the first problem we have is we have a heart that is bent on idolatry. It's just riddled with idolatry. And we, we come into salvation 
with this heart that's bent on idolatry. And so the, the first step in farming is we, we got to become a serial killer of sin because you know what happens when we do that? When we do that in a gospel-centered way, it is mowing down the idols of our heart. That's what we start doing. It's just We're just mowing down idols. And so... Uh, what is that? What is the, what is the, what is the idol? I mean, sure. It looks, uh, it looks different. You know, in some lives it looks like fornication. In some lives it's uncleanness. In some lives it's passion or evil desire or covetousness. But what are all those things? They're idolatry of self. It's self-gratification. What you have to, you have to understand about you is that your greatest danger in the process of sanctification is idolizing yourself. That is bar none, far and away, top spot, never challenged. That's where we all have to just take great caution because we are just Filled with the capacity to puff ourselves up. Okay, now let's back up a second to our common virtue. And let's, let me just drive this point home about self-gratification. The person who changes motivated by fear that God is going to uh, that they're going to lose some benefit in God if they misbehave. Who who are they? So when they when they act in a moral way, when they quote unquote behave, who are they really doing that for? They're not doing that for God. What what you're doing when you do that is you're doing that for yourself. You're serving the God of you because you benefit in your system of behavior. So if you behave, then God rewards. So therefore, you behave for the reward. So you're just a dog on a treat line. You just want the treat. That's all. You don't care anything about the hand that hands it to you. You just want the treat. Right? Yes. It's it's self Gratification. It's the idolatry of self. What about the person who is motivated by pride? Think about it. So if I behave correctly and it makes me look good in the eyes of the spectators around me, then what is my motivation to behave right? I'm motivated to behave right because of the acceptance that I receive for my behavior. It has nothing to do with the person who's determined what is right behavior. You understand? Yeah. So be careful. Be careful. Because if you, if you want to, if you want to teach someone to clean their room, you might reward them for cleaning their room. That might be a process of teaching them how to clean their room. But that is not a process for teaching them gospel-centered change. That's a process of teaching them 
common virtue. That's a process of teaching them to be motivated by the idol of self. So be very careful. Be very careful. So there's an illustration uh, that I keep in my office that I, uh, I read that makes this point. And it's just a made-up story, but it makes the point very correctly. And here's how it goes. The story goes that there was a farmer, and I like it because it's got a farmer in it. So it fits what we're talking about. There's a farmer, and he grew this enormous carrot, squash, watermelon, whatever. He grew this enormous carrot, and he looked at this carrot, and he thought, my goodness, this is the biggest carrot I've ever grown. Look at how beautiful it is. It's perfect symmetry. I could, I could, I could put it in the carrot competition at the fair and probably win first prize carrot grower. But instead, what I'm going to do is I... I'm going to give this carrot away. So he takes the carrot and he goes to the king. And he, gives, and he goes to the king and he goes before the king and he says, King, I, I, just, uh, I grew this wonderful carrot and I just wanted to give this carrot to you. Uh, and so I hope you receive this carrot, you know, as a gift from me to you. And so the king takes the carrot and the king discerns the, the motivation of the farmer as being pure and just a gift from, from the, the generosity of his heart. And so the king says to the farmer, he says, you know, thank you for this carrot. It's a very nice gift. And I, I know that this probably means a lot to you. And, and so I'm, I receive it as the gracious gift that it was intended for. But by the way, I, I happen to own the, the plot of land that's next to uh, your plot of land where you grew this carrot. And I'd like to give you that expansive plot of land so that you can continue to be a great farmer. And so the farmer graciously accepted the gift of the king and he walked away being this large landowner now. And there was a nobleman that overheard this whole conversation. And the nobleman saw this interaction that happened between the king and the farmer and he thought, oh my goodness, if you give the king a carrot and you get a plot of land, then what would happen if you actually gave the king something of real value? So the nobleman goes before the king and he brings this stallion, this horse, and he brings the horse before the king and he says, King, this is the finest horse that I've ever raised and I'd like to give you this horse as a, as a gift. And so he gives the horse to the, to the king and the king says, Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the gift. And then the king starts to walk away. And the nobleman says, Well, wait, wait, wait. Well, what happened here? And the king turns and says to the nobleman, he says, the farmer gave the carrot as a gift for me. You gave the horse as a gift for you. It illustrates the difference between common virtue and true virtue. It, it illustrates the difference between behavior modification based on self-gain and simply doing the right thing from a heart of gratitude and compassion. You see the difference? And what we want to do is we want... What God does in Scripture is He shepherds our heart to be like that of the farmer. And He cautions us not to be like that of the nobleman. But our flesh is never resting. Never resting. 
to make us act like that of the nobleman, to only do that which people are going to see, to only do that which is going to reward us, to only do that to, to, to have this false sense of morality, which is not gospel-centered uh, behavior. And so the Scripture, for example, is going to just come right out and really just be as bold and forthright about this issue of idolatry as it possibly can. For example, you certainly know that when God gives the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, He begins with the command, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Command number one is, you shall have no other gods before me. God goes on. He says, you shall, make, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You can't conjure up for yourself something to worship. Don't do this. Now, notice the intentionality of God. He says, you can have no other gods before me. Don't make your own carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is uh, on the earth beneath or even in the water under the earth. Now, what is the, what is the, what is the, the assertion in that commandment? It is this. That number one, that is our greatest danger. That is the first commandment because that is our first tendency. That is our first step into the, the, the quicksand of, of self-gratification. But more than that, notice that there's only two possibilities according to Exodus 20 and everywhere else in the Scripture. There's only two. You have option A, which is you worship God, and you have option B, which is you worship an idol. What's option C? There is no option C. There's no possible way that any human being is not worshiping something. There's no warning in anywhere in Scripture that beware that you worship nothing. Beware that your heart be void of any idol. Why? There's, why? Because that's impossible. Because our heart is an idol factory. And so God says, you have two options. You either worship me or you worship an idol. So don't worship an idol. So, so what do we do? How do we respond? Well, we have to declare war. We've got to be a serial killer of sin. We've got to be honest. We've got to have gospel-centered uh, morality, if you will. We've got to be motivated by the gospel. We've got to make sure that we're not motivated by fear or motivated by pride. We've got to put on the garment of grace. Why not? How does that work? Here's how that works. There you are, motivated by uh, fear or motivated by pride or whatever the case may be. You're in the darkness, quietness of your own Bedroom, there's no one around. 
you are at work late, there's no one there, whatever the case may be. There's no, there's no other human eyes looking upon you, which is so insane because we know that the Scripture tells us over and over and over, it's replete with warnings that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro. They see all the movements and wanderings of men. And God knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. But we just throw that all away. And so we just fear men and we get wrapped up in what people think. And so there you are in the secrecy of the moment and you're faced with this great temptation. And what are you going to do? What is the motivation for doing the right thing when it's not going to profit you anything? And in fact, it's probably going to cost you something. How do you move in God's direction? You put the garment of grace on that says, I'm not motivated by fear because God died, which proves his his unending love for me and devotion to me that he's not going to leave me or forsake me. I'm not going to be motivated by uh, uh, fear or pride, but I'm not because I know that my sin was so great that God had to die. So I don't have anything to be prideful of. I'm going to put the garment of grace on in the gospel and say, Jesus died that I no longer have to walk in slavery and bondage to these things. That in response to the gratitude of the free gift of this precious carrot that we've grown, the king grants unthinkable riches. That I'm not motivated by what I I don't even know or understand how God's going to move, bless, or work. I'm not doing it for what I'm going to receive. I'm doing it because of the grace I've already received. I put on the garment of grace. That is the motivation for holiness. I mean, that's the only motivation that's sustainable. It's the only motivation that's going to last. Trust me on this. Trust me. I have tried. I have tried. My tendency is not uh, the fear route. It's the pride route. And I can assure you that it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. And that you will not be able to change based on uh, anything other than a gospel-centered, gospel-empowered change. So we're going to declare that we're, we're going to declare war. We're going to be serial killers of our sin. And how are we going to do that? We're going to put on this bulletproof vest, if you will. So if we're farming, we're going to go out into the field. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put on our coveralls of grace. If that's the uniform of a farmer, then we're going to put on our coveralls of grace. And then we're not going to even attempt to walk out in that field until we have the coveralls of grace on. Because if we don't put the coveralls of grace on, we're going to go out there and start digging and planting. And one row is going to be dug because of fear. The other row is going to be, row's going to be dug because of pride. And we're going to be farming a whole bunch of stuff that's never going to come to, it's never going to come to pass. It's never going to come to harvest because it's not going to be sustainable. But if we put on the coveralls of grace, then we can go out and we can begin the process. So that's the first thing. The second thing we do, Goodness, this one won't be as long as that one. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to become a serial rejoicer in Christ. Which is not a word, but it should be a word, so let's just make it a word. Rejoicer. 
We're going to become a serial rejoicer in Christ. So we're going to replace or slay these idols, especially this idol of self in our hearts by rejoicing in the specific blessings in Jesus that supplant that which the idol that we're trying to rid ourselves of. So whatever the area of idolatry of serving ourselves is, so whether it's any of the, uh, the, the first list of uh, fornication or uncleanness or, or this list in, beginning in verse 8. So now the Apostle Paul turns a corner and he says, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these. All of these what? Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Now, you've got to pay super close attention to verse 10 because therein lies the key to everything I'm going to say about being a rejoicer in Christ. You have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Oh my goodness, that's so rich and so deep. But we just, let's finish what we started. Uh, verse 11, where there's no Greek or no Jew. So Paul's saying that, hey, we're all equal. We're all even. There's no classifications or qualifications at the cross. But look at what happens in verse 12. Look at what happens when, as Paul continues forward, therefore, as the elect of God, as one who has received all of these boundless promises, the, the richness of this field that we're attempting to go out and to, to, to harvest, to work, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, meekness long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ has forgiven you, you also must do. But above all, these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And what I've said the last two times we've talked about this is that the, the, the mark of maturity in Christ is love. Never forget that. The mark of maturity in Christ is love. It is, it is not anything else but love. There's lots of things along the way. They come to all of us in different orders and different magnifications and in different sequences. But mark, mark my words, the finish line is love. It's love. It's the bond of perfection. Over and over and over, the New Testament reminds us of this. But anyway, back to verse 10. So we're, we're a serial rejoicer in Christ. So there we are. We, we're faced with this great temptation. We've got this moral dilemma before us. We now are wearing this garment of grace. What are we going to do? We're going to recognize that Jesus Christ died for my holiness. He died for my holiness. He died to make you and me holy. He died to win the war against sin. Now you just keep pounding that gospel message into your head and figure out, now how am I 
going to saturate my mind with the reality of what Jesus Christ has done that I might be able to walk in holiness. I am not. I am not going to take this garment of grace off and go back to to pride, go back to 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 fear. I'm not going to go back to guilt or shame. No way. Now I'll jump off the pride bus any day and jump into the shame camp if it if it if it if it profits me. I'll jump right out of the condemnation bus, right onto the fear bus if it profits me. I mean, I'll jump, I'll, I'll, I'll hopscotch right alongside of every other person who's ever been saved, right along all the things that won't sustain. But in the garment of grace, it's a game changer. I mean, here's an opportunity to do something that my flesh desires to do, but Jesus died that I might be holy. That my heart is captivated by the beauty and majesty of my King and Lord and Savior, Jesus. And He died that I might be holy. And I am clothed in this garment of grace. And that sin, that temptation, oh, it's fading fast. It is the, the, the shininess wears off it. I mean, the, 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 it just goes away. But what's the, what's the benefit to it? What's the gain? What's the payoff? No, I have Christ. And so then if I think to myself, no, wait a minute. If I do this, I could make a lot of money. But it may not be pleasing to God. But I'm wearing the garment of grace that reminds me that God is, He's all in. He's fully vested in my salvation. So I don't need a lot of money because I know based on his action towards me that he's not going to leave me or forsake me and that whatever I need, he's going to supply. So I don't need all that money. In fact, I don't want all that money because with all that money comes all the new trappings and temptations. So I don't want that. You see? You see, if I get, if I'm tempted by, oh, there's this relationship that, that it, it looks good on the outside. And if I could get out of one relationship and into another relationship, this relationship would be better than that relationship. But then I'm, I'm harnessed in the garment of grace. And I realize that, wait a minute. Jesus died for my holiness and has promised to give me everything, everything that pertains to life and godliness. And so because of that, I know that He has already given me everything I need to resolve any deficiency in the relationship that I'm in. And that my greatest chance for, for, for joy or peace or blessing or prosperity or for whatever it is I'm, or satisfaction or whatever it is that's drawing me to this other relationship, my greatest hope is in Him where I am. And so for every husband and every wife who's walked away from one to find one that was better was not wearing the garment of grace. You see, they had convinced themselves that somehow they're going to advance the idol of self-gratification. But the, the garment of grace that slays that dragon
it gives practical uh, defenses to propel our positional reality. I can make the simplest thing sound complicated. I don't know why. It makes sense to me. Positionally. Listen. I'm starting to sweat, so we got to get done. Positionally. Is this good or what? I mean, does this make you happy? It's a blessing to, to your heart. God is so good. And He says, you are my children. You're my children. You, you, you have nothing to be proud of, and yet you have utterly nothing to fear. And so just walk in the way in which I've called you. And you know what? When, when, it, when, it, when the cliff seems steep and, and you're walking close to the ledge or when you, when you see something someone else has and it looks so good, just stop and remind your heart of the gospel. Wait, 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 no. Just say, ho, oh, put the garment of grace on and realize Christ died for my holiness. And with that comes everything that pertains to life and godliness. So Paul tells the, the, the believers at Colossae, he says that, that he, he says, put these things to death. Then he turns and he says, now you're going to put off this next list of things. You're going you're to put off all these behaviors. You see, the first list was all these internal self-gratification, sort of passion-driven heart idols. But now the second list is, what is it? It's external. It's, I mean, they're, 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 this isn't, you're not, you're not angry inside. You're not, you're, not, you're not blaspheming in silence. There's not filthy language pouring out of your mouth that nobody's saying. These are all external manifest, manifestations of, of not walking in what God called us to walk in. But he says this, he says, but here's what you're going to do. You're going to put on all these beautiful things, but how are you going to do that? You put on the new man who is renewed. What is he renewed in? What do you think Paul is speaking of when he says, who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him? You see? You see Exodus 20 looming out there? He's saying, don't don't worship an idol. You... Just fixate your gaze on the knowledge and beauty of all that you've received in Christ. You slay the dragon of idolatry by first and foremost swimming in the ocean of God's beauty and grace. Being so in love with all that He's done. That every time, and here's the thing, this is, this is the glory of repentance. I mean, if, if, if it's the coveralls or the garments of grace, then the next conversation we're going to have is the shovel, is a shovel of repentance. And I tell you what, if there's one thing we have so utterly and completely mixed up and messed up and got backwards. It is the gift of repentance. 
We think of repentance in this day and age as it's, it's, the, it's the emergency, break glass in case of emergency, let's get some repentance. We think that repentance is what comes into play in, in our great moments of failure and despair. And no, repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a daily uh, blessing. It's a blessing. I mean, you thank God for repentance. Repentance, because what would you do? Because here's the thing, you're not going to be perfect. So what are you going to do when you're wearing the, God, the garment of grace, but then you step in the wrong direction? Are you just dead? You would be if you were in Leviticus 10. But you're not. The veil's been torn. You've been invited in. You're not where you're not supposed to be. You're where you belong. So what do you do? You repent. God says you repent until you get through. You repent and you come back. I mean, it is so glorious. And so what is every day is a day of repentance. Every day, every day. I repent every day, multiple times a day. I mean, my goodness, it's a blessing from God. God, help me. Help me to see you more clearly. Help me to, to, to understand the depth of this grace in which I am cloaked in. Lord, help me to... to I mean, when, when Martin Luther nails the 95 Thesis in the 1500s on the uh, Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany, it's a dark time. And the gospel has been taken away from the common man and it's been perverted into something it ought not be. And so in this moment in time, which every single one of us is so very grateful for and so blessed because of what occurred in that moment on that day when people put their lives on the line that you and me might harness the power of God's word in our own hands. What? So 95 things he lists out. What is the first thing? What is number one of 95 things on that thesis? Number one on the list. Think of all the things that could have been number one. And you know what Martin Luther said? Number one, all of life is repentance. All of life. All of life. Every day is a day of repentance. It's a day of... If it's a day of grace, it's a day of repentance. If it's a day of gospel, it's a day of repentance. Yes, it is. Gospel change. It's, it's possible. Oh, yeah, it's possible. It's right there. And here's the, the good thing is that you don't, you don't, there's, you don't have to, you don't have to change uh, anything. If you're saved right now, you are in possession of everything necessary to harvest the field that you've been given to the fullest. Right now. 
No matter, what, no matter how low you feel, no matter how far you feel, no matter how, if you are saved, you possess everything needed to harvest the field that you've been given to the fullest. I just, I don't know any better news I could possibly tell you. I don't know any better news. I am so thankful every day that that is true for me. Every day, because it oftentimes does not seem that way to me. But thankfully, I'm not the one who is truth. He is. And he says that that's the case. So it's true for you tonight. It's true for you. Gospel change comes only in gospel-centered ways. You don't want to be moral motivated by fear or motivated by pride, but motivated by grace. Enamored with the knowledge of the image of the one who died that you might be the righteousness of God in him. Let's stand, bow our heads. Father, we are grateful tonight for your goodness to us through the Scripture. And Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for the grand invitation to come and, and to work the field of salvation, Lord. To be people who put to death, Lord, these sins that so easily beset us, God that the reality of the promises of Scripture are there. They're there not to dangle in front of us like a, like a prize that is unattainable, but they're there for every single one of us. There is no Jew or no Greek. There's no division. There's no separation. There's no levels. But, God, we're all equal at the cross. And there's the grand promises of Scripture, attainable. For every single one of us. Oh God, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord. Your goodness towards us is it's un, it's unmatched. In so many ways, it's unthinkable. And so God, will you help us to go forward just driven by your beauty that's just embossed upon our heart. And we'll give you praise and glory. So Lord, we pause in this moment and just bow our heads in silence and ask you, Lord, to to just help us respond to what we've heard tonight, Lord. I don't know, but you do know that which you're calling each person here to do. So Father, just do your perfect work here and we'll be grateful that you've done it and it's not been a work of man. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name.